BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. United States Army Special Forces, established in 1952, is an elite group of the military in a league of their own. Commonly known as the Green Berets, thanks to their distinctive headgear, they are considered the best of the best. To serve as a Green Beret is considered a privilege. The recruitment process is grueling. Exceptional physical and mental endurance is required to successfully complete all aspects of specialized training. Not only are the special forces trained in high-level combat tactics and reconnaissance, but languages, diplomacy, psychological warfare, and international politics. This allows them to infiltrate and operate undetected behind enemy lines in their deployment to high-risk, occupied locations all around the world. Green Berets are also trained to generate and spread misinformation while maintaining strict secrecy especially in counterterrorism and counterinsurgency operations. But like other aspects of their training, this is not a skill that members of the Special Forces would utilize outside their work life. Every member of the U.S. Special Forces is required to sign and abide by a code that sets out the expectations of every individual. The code reads, in part, I will conduct myself at all times in such a way as to bring honor to my team service, and country. It's not a promise to be made lightly. Sadly, as you'll hear today, one Special Forces member in particular not only violated this undertaking, but he did it in perhaps the most unimaginable way possible. Now, let's get on with it. Part 1. All-American Jeffrey McDonald was born in the New York City borough of Queens on October 12, 1943. 
The second of three children, he grew up on Long Island, where he attended Patchogue High School. As senior class president and captain of the high school football team, the charismatic and ambitious Jeffrey was voted both most popular and most likely to succeed. Upon graduating high school, he won a scholarship to Princeton University. In his sophomore year, he reconnected with his former high school sweetheart, Colette Stevenson, whom he'd been friends with since childhood. Colette attended Skidmore College in New York after she graduated high school. She'd been close to her father, who died when Colette was 12 years old. But her mother remarried, and Colette went on to develop a strong bond with her stepfather. Colette was a kind and sensitive person who was intuitive to the needs of others. She loved listening to music and enjoyed reading, especially English literature. Colette became pregnant to Jeffrey during their relationship, and the couple married in New York City in September 1963. Colette dropped out of college to move to Princeton with her husband, but her mother was thrilled that Colette had found security with such a driven, yet caring partner. The couple's first child, Kimberly, was born in Princeton on April 18, 1964. Not long after Kimberly was born, Jeffrey and his young family moved to Chicago, where he attended Northwestern University Medical School. The couple welcomed their second daughter, Kristen, on May 8, 1967. Upon Jeffrey's graduation from medical school in 1968, the family moved to Bergenfield, New Jersey. Jeffrey completed his internship at the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York, where he was named Intern of the Year. His medical career was off to a flying start, but Jeffrey wanted more. So in July 1969, he joined the U.S. Army. Colette was reported to have some concerns about the career move. But despite her reservations, the family moved to officers' quarters at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. In terms of population, Fort Bragg is the largest military base in the United States, situated just outside the city of Fayetteville. In 1969, the height of the Vietnam War, Fayetteville was a transit point for GIs being deployed to and returning from Southeast Asia. With a population of around 54,000 people, the city became nicknamed Vietnam. In contrast to the strict regulations and orderliness of Fort Bragg, Fayetteville saw an increase in transient population. Drug use, overdoses, and violent crime became more frequent as disillusioned and traumatized GIs returned from Vietnam. In parts of Fayetteville, drugs such as LSD and heroin became freely available to those who sought an escape from what they had witnessed on the front lines. The McDonald's new two-story home, located on Castle Drive, was culturally a world away from the red-light district of Fayetteville. The family enjoyed spending their weekends exploring the area surrounding Fort Bragg. Colette was focused on getting her college degree, so she enrolled in English classes at the North Carolina University Extension School on the base. Even though Kimberly was only five years old, she was already showing a real love of reading and drawing and was said to have a gentle nature. Two-year-old Kristen had a love of animals and playing in the outdoors, and was said to be more confident and fearless than her sister. Despite the McDonald's moving away from their own families, Jeffrey later described their life in Fort Bragg as a middle-class, loving environment. In addition to his competence and professionalism, Jeffrey's colleagues reported that he was a loving, proud, and dedicated husband and father. 
By age 26, Jeffrey had been promoted to the ranks of captain. In September 1969, he was assigned to the 3rd Special Forces Group, or Green Berets, as group surgeon. The discipline and uncompromising standards suited Jeffrey perfectly, given his ambition to be part of an elite group of people and surround himself with those who are as successful as he was. Jeffrey maintained peak physical fitness through a rigorous exercise regime of boxing and running. In addition to his role as Special Forces Group Surgeon, Jeffrey also worked hospital night shifts. He joined a group of Army doctors who provided counseling services for GIs, who had developed drug and alcohol dependency. This service was a delicate balancing act between maintaining relative confidentiality and being transparent with commanding officers about whether a certain GI was fit to continue serving. Despite Jeffrey's best intentions working in the drug and alcohol field, it was reported that he wasn't exactly sympathetic to the plight of people who were dependent on drugs. Part 2. Laid to Waste At 3.40 a.m. on February 17, 1970, a phone call was received by the operator in Fayetteville. The person on the other end of the line was requesting assistance at the McDonald home on Castle Drive. At 3.42 a.m., another call was made from the same address, this time being patched through to the military police in Fort Bragg. A stabbing had been reported. Military police arrived in the rain to find the rear door to the home unlocked and open, but no sign of forced entry. In the master bedroom at the end of the hall, the body of 26-year-old Colette, who was four months pregnant, was lying on her back on the floor. Both her arms were broken, and there was evidence of defensive wounds to her arms and hands. Colette had patterned bruising on her chest, as if she had been violently poked with a blunt object. She was wearing pink pajamas, but a blood-stained bath mat had been draped over her abdomen and upper thighs. Colette's torso was covered in what was later found to be Jeffrey's torn and bloody pajama top. Underneath the pajama top, Colette's own pajama top had been pulled to the side, exposing her left breast. She had sustained multiple head injuries from a blunt object, exposing her skull. She had also had 37 stab wounds to her chest, arms, and neck. The floor rug and bed linen were covered in a significant amount of blood. The word pig had been scrawled in blood on the wall above the bed, and pieces of a surgical glove were found on the bed, dresser, and Colette's body. A torn, blood-stained surgical glove was on the floor, as was a small knife which lay between the armchair and dresser. Kimberly and Kristen's bedrooms were situated on opposite sides of the hall. At first glance, both girls appeared to be tucked up tightly in their beds asleep. However, when officers pulled back the covers, they were confronted with an unimaginable horror. Kimberly was clutching the security blanket she liked to take to bed each night, but her pillow was soaked in blood. The right side of Kimberly's head and face had extensive bruising and multiple skull fractures caused by six blows from a blunt object. She had been stabbed in the neck up to ten times. Her younger sister Kristen had been stabbed in the chest, neck, back, and shoulder 48 times while she slept. Blood pulled around her midsection and dripped onto the floor. 
The autopsy later found laceration on Kristen's hands consistent with defensive wounds, and that she had died from blood loss. But curiously, the stab wounds to Kristen's torso didn't correspond to the slashes in her clothing. This indicated that whoever had killed her had lifted up her pajama top before inflicting the wounds. Colette and Kristen's stab wounds had been inflicted by two separate implements, an ice pick and a knife. The attack on all three victims had been brutal and frenzied. Blood splatter was everywhere, including the bathroom sink. Nothing could be done to save Colette or her daughters. Thankfully, Jeffrey was alive. When police found him, he was lying on his stomach on the floor of the master bedroom, to the left of Colette, with his head on her shoulder. Jeffrey had sustained bruises, abrasions, and a bump on his forehead, and scratch marks on his chest. He also had 8-10 to superficial stab wounds to his left arm, upper abdomen, and chest. One of the stab wounds appeared to have been inflicted by a scalpel, and had partially collapsed his right lung. In the living room, the coffee table was turned onto its side and magazines were strewn about the floor. Jeffrey's reading glasses were lying on the floor underneath the curtains, one of the lenses was stained with blood. Despite this disarray, the living room was neat and undisturbed. In the dining room, Valentine's Day cards, a china cabinet, and chairs all remained upright, with no indication that any struggle had taken place. In the kitchen, several blood spots later found to match Jeffrey's blood type were located on the floor, in front of the cabinet under the sink. Under the kitchen sink was a box of surgical gloves, a significant quantity of prescription and over-the-counter medication was found in the house. When police asked Jeffrey what happened, he told them he'd been reading on the couch before falling asleep around 2 a.m. Sometime later, he awoke to see an African-American man and two white men standing at the front of the couch. The African-American man was wearing an army jacket with sergeant stripes and was holding a club. Standing next to the men was a girl wearing a floppy hat and white boots, and Jeffrey told the police that the group appeared to be hippies. Jeffrey said he thought the girl was holding a candle or flashlight, and she spoke in a monotone, saying, Acid is groovy. Kill the pigs. Jeffrey claimed the girl's chanting was punctuated by the sounds of Colette screaming, Jeff, why are they doing this to me? And Kimberly screaming out, Daddy! Daddy, Daddy. Jeffrey told police that before he knew what was happening, the African-American man was striking him on the head repeatedly with the club. Jeffrey stated he also saw a flash of light reflect off of what he thought was a knife blade. He then realized he was being stabbed, but could not defend himself against the blows of the knife. His pajama top had somehow become entangled around his hands, restricting his movement and hindering his ability to fend off the blows. Jeffrey thought his pajama top had become entangled as a result of the group trying to pull him off the couch. He told the police that the next thing he knew, he somehow ended up on the stairs leading to the master bedroom, where he quickly lost consciousness. Jeffrey was taken to the Womack Army Hospital on Fort Bragg, but luckily, none of his injuries were found to be life-threatening. He was still unaware that his pregnant wife, their unborn son, and daughters were dead. Meanwhile, the McDonald home had not been sealed off. The murder scene was swarmed with up to 27 officers who weren't there to gather evidence, but it turned up out of curiosity. 
It was later reported that there was a confusion about who was in charge of managing the scene, which one officer who attended the house the previous night described as a zoo. Evidence taken from the home in the hours after the triple murders was contaminated, moved, and even lost. The hospital discarded Jeffrey's pajama bottoms. Fingernail scrapings disappeared, including a sample of human skin retrieved from underneath Colette's left small finger and a fiber from Jeffrey's pajama top found with Kristen's body. The four fragments from the surgical gloves found in the master bedroom also went missing. The trash was collected from the McDonald home before investigators can search through it, and the scalpel could not be located. But other evidence remained untouched at the scene. Thankfully for the investigators, the McDonald family all had different blood types. This proved to be a big help in the forensic analysis and reconstruction of events. Jeffrey's pajama top and the bath mat placed over Colette's body were stained with blood belonging to both Colette and Kimberly. In the doorway of the master bedroom, Kimberly's blood and brain serum were found. In the master bedroom, 60 pieces of fabric and 30 purple cotton and blue polyester cotton threads were found from Jeffrey's pajama top, including the pocket. The same type of threads were also found underneath Colette's body and were identified as the stitching that held the pocket to the pajama top. More fibers from the pajama top were found underneath Kimberly's sheets, and a splinter of wood was found on her pillow. When Jeffrey's pajama top was examined, he had 48 cylindrical holes. In an effort to determine the cause of the holes, the top was placed over Colette's body to replicate what officers first saw when the body was discovered on the floor of the bedroom. The holes in the pajama top lined up perfectly with the 21 stab wounds that had been inflicted on Colette with an ice pick. Wrapped around the small finger of Colette's right hand was a broken and bloody hair from a Caucasian male, but the specific sources couldn't be identified. Colette and Kimberly's blood was also found in numerous areas in the master bedroom. A speck of blood on the lens of Jeffrey's glasses found on the floor of the living room was determined to belong to Kristen. Kimberly's blood was found on a magazine lying on the living room floor, underneath the edge of the upturned coffee table. Jeffrey's blood was found in the bathroom and on the sliding door of the linen closet adjacent to the bathroom. A bloody footprint outside Kristen's bedroom was also noted. Blood splatter belonging to Colette extended up a wall inside Kristen's room, and an extensive amount of Colette's blood was also found on Kristen's bed linen. Outside the rear door of the house, officers found a three-foot-long bloody piece of wood, a paring knife, and an ice pick with a tan wooden handle. When the length of the wood was tested, there was evidence of both Colette and Kimberly's blood, as well as two blue threads, which were stuck to the blood stains. Even though police had been called from the McDonald home, no fingerprints were found on either telephone handset in the house. Military police were quick to label the slayings as ritualistic. Director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, announced that the agency would not become involved in the investigation, leaving it to the military police. On the face of it, this decision appeared to make sense. It was reasonable to assume that the military police were considered more than capable and would follow their own strict investigative protocols which were separate to civilian criminal proceedings. However, the 1989 BBC documentary False Witness later revealed that Hoover's announcement was motivated by damage control 
and a desire to distance both himself and the agency from the investigation. The confidential telex he sent not long after the murder stated, Under no circumstances should we become involved, since the Army handled this case poorly from its inception. As military police continued to work to piece together the terrible events of the attack, mourners gathered at the John F. Kennedy Memorial Chapel on Fort Bragg on February 21, 1970, to pay their respects and farewell to Collette, Kimberly, and Kristen. Following the service, their bodies were flown back to New York for internment in Collette's family's burial plot. R3. Do what has to be done. Seven weeks after the murders, Jeffrey was interviewed on April 6 by the Army's Criminal Investigations Division, or CID. He was asked to repeat his account of what happened on that night. Jeffrey told the CID that Colette arrived home around 9.30 p.m. after her evening class at Fort Bragg. Jeffrey had been home all night and had earlier put Kimberly and Kristen to bed. Colette and Jeffrey enjoyed a nightcap and watched the start of a late-night talk show, something they often did together. Colette went to bed around midnight. Jeffrey stated that before he turned in, he checked on his daughters. Kristen was sleeping next to Colette in the master bedroom, but had wet the bed. Jeffrey carried Kristen back to her own room, then took a blanket to the living room couch, where he settled in for the night given his side of the bed, was wet. He said he took off his glasses and placed them on a table, either behind him or next to the couch. Jeffrey reiterated that he awoke to see an African-American man and a woman in a floppy hat standing near the couch, watching him. He maintained that the woman said, Acid is groovy. Kill the pigs. Before the group attacked him, leaving him unconscious in the hallway, just after 3 a.m., he regained consciousness, and in a daze, made his way into the master bedroom, which he saw covered in blood. Glett's lifeless body was lying on the floor, and Jeffrey said he saw a knife sticking out of his wife's chest, which he instinctively removed. In an effort to keep Colette warm, he covered her in his torn and bloody pajama top after struggling to remove it from his hands. He instinctively performed mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on Colette, but soon realized this was futile. Jeffrey told the CID that he then went to Kimberly's room, followed by Kristen's. Desperately trying to revive each of his family members, he then dialed zero and requested assistance. This was the call logged at 3.40 a.m. Jeffrey stated he then noticed the rear door of the house was open, but denied going outside saying he walked around the house some more. Jeffrey said he washed his hands in the bathroom, but couldn't explain why. His best guess was that it was an action that may have been second nature due to him being a doctor. At 3.42 a.m., Jeffrey again called the operator requesting an ambulance, telling the dispatcher, We've been stabbed. People are dying. Jeffrey was adamant that no ice picks were kept in the house, saying the family didn't own one. When military police arrived at the scene, Jeffrey remembered begging them, Forget about me. Check my kids. Jeffrey's version of events defied logic, and the CID was dubious. The story that a group of intruders had killed his family 
was inconsistent with the nature and extent of his injuries. If Jeffrey was the target, why had his family been so viciously attacked? His injuries weren't life-threatening, so why had his alleged attackers taken the risk of leaving him alive, allowing him to identify them? On the night of the murders, it had been raining heavily for some time before Jeffrey dialed for help. If intruders had made their way into the house, they had somehow managed to avoid leaving any mud or grass on the floor. Nothing had been stolen, and for Jeffrey to be involved in a violent struggle with a group of men, the house had remained uncharacteristically neat. Jeffrey claimed that he was stabbed in the living room while his pajama top was pulled over his head and tangled around his hands. But if this was the case, the fabric would have been ripped. So why were there no signs of threats from the pajama top in the living room as there were in the master bedroom? And why, if his pajama top was covered in holes made by an ice pick, were none of the stab wounds inflicted with the same implement? Something else inconsistent with Jeffrey's account was the bloodstain evidence. When his pajama top was analyzed, it was evident that the garment had been stained with Colette and Kimberly's blood before it was torn during Jeffrey's struggle with the alleged intruders. Jeffrey's account of going into his daughter's bedrooms after placing his pajama top over Colette couldn't explain how the fibers from the pajama top had been transferred, nor could the lack of Jeffrey's fingerprints on the phone handsets be accounted for, as he said he'd washed his hands after calling the operator. Jeffrey had insisted that two-year-old Kristen, who had gone to bed with Colette, had later wet the bed. But in another inconsistency, later reported by the Washington Post, the urine found on Jeffrey's side of the bed did not belong to Kristen. Instead, it was consistent with Kimberly's blood type. This indicated that Jeffrey had lied about which of his daughters was sleeping next to Colette. A significant quantity of Kimberly's blood found on the rug and bed linen in the master bedroom supported the CID theory that she had been killed there, not in her own room as Jeffrey claimed. Jeffrey had been fairly calm up to this point in his interview, but the CID probed further, and Jeffrey realized they were skeptical of his account. He became emotional in recounting his version of events, saying, No one ever had as good as a life as I had. What the hell would I try to wreck it for? Christ, I was a doctor. Jesus, I had a beautiful wife who loved me and two kids who were great. It doesn't make any sense. The CID rejected Jeffrey's version of events. By this stage, they had formed the view that his chest injury was self-inflicted and that he staged the scene in both the living room and master bedroom. Jeffrey was informed that he was the prime suspect, and on May 1st, 1970, he was charged with murdering his wife and daughters. A hearing would be convened under Article 32 of the United States Uniform Code of Military Justice. This would determine whether there was probable cause to proceed to a court-martial. The hearing began in early July 1970. Army prosecutors alleged that Jeffrey had killed his family and staged the crime scene before self-inflicting his stab wounds with a scalpel. Prosecutors also claimed that prior to the murders, Jeffrey read an article in Esquire magazine about Satanism, which he later discussed with a family friend. It was this article, they claimed, that gave him the idea of telling the CID that he awoke to find the group of intruders. A quote from the article had chilling similarities to what Jeffrey claimed he heard the girl chanting on the night of the murders. 
The devil just looks groovier. Acid is incredible. The language bore a striking resemblance to Acid is groovy. Kill the pigs. Both the prosecution and the defense cases were circumstantial. Testifying in his defense, Jeffrey denied the allegations, including the assertions that he'd injured himself or read any articles about satanic cults. And he wasn't the only one who rejected the prosecution's claims. Colette's stepfather, Freddie, was outspoken about Jeffrey's innocence. Speaking to the media, Freddie said, The Army contends my daughter and two grandchildren suffered in excess of 80 stab wounds. What they want the public to believe is that a sane man sat down and planned to perform such an act. I don't believe anybody in this country would believe that, that a sane man would do this. Desperate for new information, Colette's family offered a $5,000 reward. This prompted a member of the public to contact Jeffrey's attorney. The man reported that on the night of the murders, he saw his female neighbor return home at 4 a.m. in a blue Mustang, driven by an African-American man. The woman was wearing a blonde wig, a floppy-brimmed hat, and boots. Her name was Helena Stokely. 16-year-old Helena was the daughter of a Fort Bragg colonel and heavily involved in the Fayetteville drug scene. Her boyfriend, Greg Mitchell, had served in Vietnam, and like many others, had returned with a dependency on drugs and alcohol. By early 1970, Helena was said to have a $200 a day heroin habit, while also working as an informant for the Fayetteville Police Department regarding drug activity. Her neighbor reported that when he saw Helena return home that night, sitting next to her in the car was a man who matched the description of her boyfriend, Greg. The other men in the car were wearing field jackets. The neighbor reported that after the night he saw Helena arrive home, she had a conversation with him. Helena appeared to be under the influence of drugs during the conversation, but she told her neighbor she was at the McDonald home on the night of the murders. Helena stated she lit candles while in the home, wasn't involved in killing Colette, Kimberly, or Kristen. Helena expressed concern to her neighbor that she thought she'd been seen by the military police in the vicinity of the McDonald home on the night of the murders. Further inquiries revealed that Helena's account was corroborated by a narcotics detective from Fayetteville PD. Another informant told the detective that at 10.30 p.m. on the night of the murders, Helena was seen exiting a blue Mustang near a Dunkin' Donuts store in Fayetteville. She was accompanied by two white men and an African-American man. Just after 1 a.m. and under the influence of drugs, the group left the store and headed in the direction of Fort Bragg. Helena was described as wearing a long blonde wig, floppy-brimmed hat, and white boots. Helena told the detective she joined a call in Fayetteville, which included Vietnam veterans and former members of the Special Forces. She claimed that the people who saw help for drug dependency issues in the community despised Jeffrey because he was unempathetic and refused to prescribe methadone. Helena also claimed that Jeffrey was responsible for GIs being discharged from the army after they saw help to overcome an addiction. The detective grilled her on her whereabouts on the night of the murders, asking if she was at the McDonald house. He noticed Helena became emotional before responding, I think I was there. I think I saw this happen. Following this revelation, Helena was interviewed by the chief army investigator, but no notes were taken during her interview, 
and she was allowed to go. In October 1970, the Article 32 hearing concluded. The decision was made that there was no probable cause to proceed to a court-martial. Going even further, the hearing officer determined that there was no case for Jeffrey to answer at all, recommending that all charges be dismissed because the matter set forth are not true. The hearing officers also suggested that the focus of the investigation should instead move to the alleged involvement of Helena Stokely. It was highly unusual for a military hearing officer to make a recommendation of this sort, which is usually considered outside the role of military court proceedings. The CID investigators themselves were shocked to say the least. There was no doubt in their minds that Jeffrey was responsible for murdering his family. They were also in disbelief that not only had he escaped a court-martial, but that it now appeared that the military was openly endorsing his innocence. The military taking such a position was unheard of, especially considering there were too many things Jeffrey couldn't explain. Colette's stepfather, Freddie, was determined to find out more. Unlike civilian court proceedings, members of a victim's family are not permitted to attend military hearings to hear evidence. Following the hearing, Freddie contacted Jeffrey repeatedly, requesting the transcript of the proceedings, which he finally received in December 1970. Freddie immediately began poring over the hearing documents. He was not only concerned about what he was reading, but alarmed at multiple inconsistencies jumping out at him. To add further insult to injury, the documents also revealed that during the hearing, Jeffrey had been having a casual relationship with at least one woman. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Part 4. Tell it to the Marines. 
With the military hearing concluded, Jeffrey applied for a hardship discharge. By late 1970, he had left both the Army and Fort Bragg behind him. Now a civilian, he moved back to New York City. But rather than retreating from the media spotlight to protect his privacy, he started making TV appearances. To Colette's family, this was odd behavior. Colette's stepfather, Freddie, had initially been very public in supporting Jeffrey's innocence. But now he and his wife were wavering. There was something about Jeffrey's demeanor they found not only out of place, but completely inappropriate given the circumstances. The man on the TV screen did not appear to be grieving the loss of his pregnant wife and two little girls, who had been brutally slain. Instead, Jeffrey seemed to be relishing the limelight, even cracking jokes as he spoke to talk show host Dick Cavett in December 1970. There was no concern on Jeffrey's part that the person or persons responsible for murdering his family were still at large. Everything seemed to be about his suffering and the view that he had been unfairly targeted by investigators. In interviews, Jeffrey embellished the amount of stab wounds he had sustained, claiming that he had been struck up to 22 times. For Colette's family, it was both distressing and distasteful. Jeffrey was openly critical of the CID, telling Dick Cavett that the officers involved had mostly been transferred. He quipped smugly, It's the army way of handling things. If someone really fouls up, you either give them a medal or you transfer them. In 1971, Jeffrey moved across the country to California into a condo in Huntington Beach. He also purchased himself a convertible Mercedes-Benz and a yacht. It seemed that Jeffrey was determined to make a new life for himself. After all, who could blame a grieving husband and father for wanting to make a fresh start? Away from the place, he lost his family in tragic circumstances. In July 1971, Jeffrey was appointed as Director of Emergency Medicine at St. Mary's Hospital in Long Beach. He made new friends who were supportive and sympathetic about the impact of the shocking and traumatic events back in Fort Bragg. Jeffrey was aware that his in-laws back in New York were still grieving the loss of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen. He also understood that his relocation to the West Coast could be perceived as abandoning his late wife's parents in their time of need. He told Colette's family that he was on a personal mission traveling the United States to search for the killers. At one stage, Jeffrey called Colette's family specifically to tell them he'd tracked down and killed a member of the group in Fayetteville whom he saw in his house on the night of the murders. By now, highly suspicious of Jeffrey's claims, Freddie recorded this phone call. Jeffrey later admitted that the claim he made about murdering one of the people he alleged was involved was a complete fabrication. In the documentary False Witness, Jeffrey justified his deception of Colette's family by saying that he was trying to quell what he described as their vindictive and pathological hatred. The CID had since learned that the neighbor who claimed he saw Helena Stokely arriving home on the night of the murders had changed his story. After failing a polygraph test, the neighbor admitted he wasn't so sure that he'd seen Helena on that specific night after all. The CID also contacted the Fayetteville narcotics detective, who suspected that Helena may have been at the McDonald home on the night in question. However, the information she provided to the detective the day after the murders had been vague, 
nor did she tell the detective where she'd been that night. Helena had left Fayetteville not long after the Article 32 hearing, drifting throughout the Carolinas and Florida. By the time the murders were being reinvestigated, she was using a combination of barbiturates, stimulants, opiates, and psychedelic drugs. She was also using heroin up to nine times a day and eventually entered a drug rehab program for two months. According to Vanity Fair magazine, when Helena was discharged, her psychiatrist noted she had a schizoid personality. He also determined that she suffered from paranoia and delusions, and that the prognosis for this patient seems poor. By the time Helena was eventually located in Nashville by the CID to be re-interviewed, she was still battling mental illness, exacerbated by the intervening years of heavy drug use. Helena told the CID that in 1970, she and her male associates knew Jeffrey and had a vendetta against him. Helena stated that on the night of the murders, the group went to the McDonald home intending to kill Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen, but the group intended to leave Jeffrey alive to suffer for the emotional and psychological torment of having to live without his wife and daughters. While this new information provided a break in some respects, its credibility was questionable. The Fayetteville detective later admitted that Helena was suggestible, and as an informant, had a history of telling law enforcement what she thought they wanted to hear. Vanity Fair reported that when Helena's fingerprints or hair couldn't be matched to any forensic evidence found at the crime scene, it was clear that the information she was providing wasn't reliable. After eliminating Helena as a suspect, the CID refocused their attention back to Jeffrey McDonald. The lie he'd previously told about locating and killing one of the people allegedly responsible for slaughtering his family only reaffirmed the suspicions of Colette's family. They were now convinced that Jeffrey was actually the killer and had gotten away with triple murder. Their profound sense of betrayal led Colette's family to lobby the U.S. government to reopen the case and investigate Jeffrey. They understood that the Army's investigation had been finalized and Jeffrey had been discharged. This meant that the only legal avenue open to Collette's family was a citizen's complaint via the Justice Department, which was filed in early 1972. In a frustrating catch-22, the complaint proved unsuccessful. Jeffrey was serving in the military when the murders occurred, but by the time the complaint was lodged, he was a civilian. A protracted legal process ensued, and in April 1972, Collette's family again presented a citizen's complaint, this time to a U.S. Chief District Court judge. This time, they were successful, and a grand jury was convened in Raleigh, North Carolina, in August 1974 to hear the evidence against Jeffrey. Fortunately for Collette's family, the death of J. Edgar Hoover two years previously opened the door for the FBI to become involved in the investigation. Over a seven-month period, the grand jury heard detailed evidence. This included an assessment by the FBI, which had reanalyzed forensic samples collected from the crime scene. Jeffrey's account of waking on the couch and defending himself against a group of armed hippies on the night of the murders wasn't supported by the evidence. A scenario the evidence did support was that when Jeffrey went into the master bedroom that night, he found that Kimberly, and not Kristen, had wet the bed. Agitated from a combination of exhaustion and the effects of the amphetamines and the weight loss pills Jeffrey had been taking, he started yelling at Kimberly. Colette instinctively moved to protect her daughter, 
The verbal confrontation between husband and wife escalated when Colette picked up a hairbrush and struck Jeffrey in the head. Jeffrey responded by punching Colette in the face, who sustained a cut lip and a bleeding nose. The FBI claimed that Jeffrey then took the length of wood from the bedroom closet and was thrusting it at Colette, as if to keep her away from him. It was this repeated poking action with the length of the wood that is believed to have caused the bruising on Colette's chest. Five-year-old Kimberly awoke as a result of the commotion and moved towards the doorway of her parents' bedroom in an effort to escape the commotion. The evidence suggested that when Jeffrey swung the length of wood, he either intentionally or accidentally struck Kimberly in the side of the head. Her skull was fractured and she was knocked unconscious. Kimberly fell to the ground, bleeding profusely. According to the Washington Post, Colette lunged at Jeffrey in anger, ripping his pajama top. In this scuffle, Jeffrey swung the length of wood at Colette, breaking both her arms and hitting her in the head and face, knocking her unconscious. Jeffrey retreated to the living room to think about what to do next. He thought he'd killed Colette and was in disbelief about what he'd just done. While Jeffrey's mind was racing, Colette had regained consciousness and stumbled toward Kristen's room. After seeing what horrors her husband was capable of, her instinct was to protect her youngest daughter, who was still sleeping peacefully down the hall. Jeffrey followed his wife to Kristen's room, where he struck Colette in the head from behind with a length of wood, causing her blood to spray onto the wall. Again, Colette slumped to the ground. Jeffrey realized that he now had to make this appear as though his family were randomly attacked while they slept in their beds. He wrapped Colette in a sheet and carried her back to the master bedroom placing her on the floor. Jeffrey took a paring knife and an ice pick from the kitchen and made his way back to Kristen's bedroom, where he stabbed her multiple times. Jeffrey then made his way back to the entrance of the master bedroom, where he retrieved Kimberly, who was lying motionless on the floor. He carried her back to her bedroom, where he stabbed her in the throat with a knife he just used to stab her sister to death. Jeffrey removed his bloody pajama top and placed it over Colette's body, before stabbing her 20 times with the ice pick. Donning a surgical glove, he wrote the word pig on the headboard in the master bedroom using Colette's blood. Moving to the hall, Jeffrey retrieved the scalpel from the closet and went to the bathroom where he inflicted the lacerations to his torso. Thanks to his medical training, Jeffrey knew how to ensure his injuries weren't life-threatening or that they would lead to significant blood loss. But they were sufficient to give the impression that the entire family had been the victims of a violent home invasion. Jeffrey returned to the living room where he staged the crime scene, turning over the coffee table and scattering the magazine haphazardly on the floor. The FBI theorized that Jeffrey cleaned the murder weapon and the scalpel and discarded them on the rear door of the house, although the scalpel was never found. Jeffrey dialed the operator requesting immediate assistance before laying down on the floor next to Colette, making it appear as though they had both been attacked in the bedroom. This detailed scenario sealed the deal for the grand jury. On January 24, 1975, Jeffrey was indicted on three counts of murder. At his arraignment in May 1975, he entered a plea of not guilty. Jeffrey appealed for the charges to be dismissed on the basis that he had been denied his right to a speedy trial. 
In late July, his appeal was denied, with his trial expected to proceed as planned in August 1975. However, before the trial commenced, it was stayed by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. In January 1976, an order was made to dismiss the indictment on the basis that Jeffrey had been denied a speedy trial. The government appealed this decision, but it wasn't until June 1977 that the U.S. Supreme Court announced that the appeal would be heard. Following further delays, in October 1978, the indictment against Jeffrey was reinstated by the Supreme Court. Jury selection for his upcoming trial was expected to commence in mid-1979. Jeffrey's trial finally commenced in July 1979 in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the media coverage was extensive. The Army investigator testified that whoever had scrawled the word pig on the headboard of the bed in Collette's blood had been wearing surgical gloves. The Corps heard that the gloves belonged to Jeffrey, but this was refuted by the defense, who claimed that the gloves Jeffrey preferred to use were a different brand. Jeffrey stated that there was no ice pick in the home, yet the McDonald's former babysitter testified that she used one, which was kept in the kitchen. She described it as a smooth-handled, light-colored ice pick that she used to remove frost from food in the freezer. It was noted that the babysitter's testimony conflicted directly with the statement she'd given to the CID nine years earlier. However, Colette's mother testified that the McDonald's did indeed keep an ice pick in the kitchen, which she used as recently as Christmas 1969, two months before the murders. The prosecution alleged that the bloody footprint outside Kristen's bedroom belonged to Jeffrey. However, there was a lack of detail in the photograph, and in the days where forensic techniques were nowhere near as sophisticated as they are today, the print had been destroyed in the process of removing it from the scene. This meant it was impossible to conclusively link the footprint to Jeffrey, but the most compelling piece of forensic evidence was Jeffrey's pajama top. The prosecution discredited Jeffrey's account of his hands becoming entangled in the garment while he was being stabbed by his assailants. In a courtroom demonstration, the prosecution showed how it would have been impossible for perfect holes to have been cut in the pajama top. A stabbing motion made at the fabric with a sharp instrument like an ice pick, combined with the movement of someone struggling against it, clearly resulted in tears, not holes. The courtroom reenactment also demonstrated that if someone had their hands entangled in the fabric, they would have sustained numerous cuts to their hands. Yet Jeffrey had no signs of cuts on his hand when he was taken to the hospital in the hours following the murders. The court heard that Colette had been stabbed through Jeffrey's pajama top after it was placed over her torso. A painstaking examination of the 48 rips in the fabric matched the placement of the stab wounds to Colette's chest. The prosecution was not required to provide a theory as to motive. However, it was revealed that Colette's family told investigators that all was not well between the couple. Colette's mother testified that she was upset when she discovered she was pregnant for a third time. Prior to the murders, Jeffrey had been conducting numerous extramarital affairs, which Colette knew about, according to her sister-in-law. One affair had started as early in the marriage as the summer after Kimberly was born. The Washington Post reported that a month after the murders, Jeffrey had sex with a nurse, but this evidence ended up being stricken from the record. In the book Fatal Vision, 
Author Joe McGinnis surmised that a combination of Jeffrey's innate sense of self-importance and amphetamine use contributed to a simple disagreement between husband and wife, escalating to violence. As he did at the Article 32 hearing, Jeffrey took the stand in his defense, but he didn't endear himself to the jury with his arrogance and bombastic manner. To the jury, Jeffrey's self-serving version of events on the stand was punctuated by bursts of tearfulness, which they perceived as an insincere, carefully rehearsed act designed purely to manipulate. Helena Stokely was arrested under a material witness warrant and brought to Raleigh to testify for the defense. She agreed to appear on the condition that she was granted immunity from prosecution. However, this was rejected by the government. Despite this setback, the defense still pushed for Helena to give evidence. When she took the stand, Helena was open about her history of drug use, and it was clear from her demeanor that she appeared to be suffering the long-term consequences. She stated she had no memory of the events of the night of the murders, beyond taking the hallucinogenic drug, mescaline, around midnight. Helena had taken a polygraph test back in early 1971, which indicated that she was not being deceptive. However, the fly in the ointment for the defense was her long history of heavy drug use and lack of consistency in her story over the years. The prosecution claimed this affected Helena's credibility and could potentially be used as evidence of unreliability and even fabrication of the story based on her memory impairment. The judge excluded Helena as a witness, describing her as one of the most tragic figures he had ever seen, to whom he could not attach any credibility given she was under a constant state of hallucination. Things were looking dire for Jeffrey. The judge would not allow any evidence in the form of his psychiatric evaluations, as no insanity plea had been entered. The defense had planned to call six other witnesses who could corroborate Helena's story, as she had been at the McDonald home on the night of the murders. But given Helena had been excused as an unreliable witness, and that the evidence was effectively hearsay, this now couldn't happen. The defense scrambled to get one of Helena's neighbors to testify that they looked at photographs of the crime scene together. But after taking into account the probative value and prejudicial effect of such evidence, the judge refused to allow a line of questioning on this point. Something else the defense had planned to introduce in the court was video of a hypnotherapy session Jeffrey had a month prior to his trial. The session was designed to elicit further information from Jeffrey about what happened on the night of the murders, but the supervising clinician was also looking for signs indicating that Jeffrey was pretending to be under hypnosis in an attempt to convince authorities that his account was truthful. In the video, Jeffrey can be seen crying and appears highly distressed when recounting the murders of his daughters. His detailed descriptions of the alleged assailants were consistent with what he'd previously told CID investigators. But in another blow for the defense, the judge prohibited the video of the hypnotherapy session being played to the jury. In closing, the prosecution reminded the jury of the link between Jeffrey's pajama top and the piece of wood used to bludgeon Colette and Kimberly. The prosecution claimed that the threads found on the piece of wood were an identical match to the fabric composition of the pajama top, despite an FBI report suggesting that this aspect of the physical evidence wasn't conclusive Jeffrey was unable to adequately explain or account for the other forensic evidence against him. The jury's decision was unanimous. 
On August 29, 1979, following a six-week trial, Jeffrey was found guilty of two accounts of second-degree murder for Colette and Kimberly and one count of first-degree murder for Kristen. He received the maximum penalty of three life sentences to be served consecutively, and his bail was revoked. Jeffrey appealed the bail revocation and requested that bail be granted pending the outcome of his appeal. However, this was denied. Part 5. A Bitter Pill Despite his conviction, Jeffrey maintained his innocence and hired a private investigator, who was the former head of the FBI's Los Angeles office. In July 1980, Jeffrey had a reprieve when his convictions were overturned by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, and he was released. The court ruled that the nine-year delay between the murders and the civilian criminal proceedings had indeed violated Jeffrey's Sixth Amendment rights to a speedy trial. Jeffrey returned to California to practice medicine, where Vanity Fair reported he became engaged to a 22-year-old flight attendant. However, in 1982, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the decision, and Jeffrey returned to prison to continue serving his sentence. He applied for both bail and a reduction in his sentence, but these were denied, and his conviction was unanimously affirmed in August 1982. Jeffrey's private investigator pursued Helena Stokely, convincing her to come to Los Angeles to speak with him. Again, Helena requested immunity from prosecution, assuring the private investigator that if this was granted, she would drop a bombshell. When Helena did not arrive in LA, the private investigator quickly realized it was an uphill battle. Helena appeared to be under the influence of drugs and also seemed reluctant to talk. She clearly wasn't going to be giving up any explosive secrets easily, especially when she wasn't sure who she could trust. But finally, Helena started to unburden herself. She told the private investigator that she had indeed been at the McDonald house when the murders occurred. While under the influence of mescaline and heroin, Helena claimed that her former boyfriend Greg had killed Colette. She also stated that the group consisted of six people, Herself, Greg, another woman, two white men, and an African-American man wearing a jacket with sergeant stripes. At the conclusion of her interview, Helena signed her type statements. The private investigator claimed that at no stage did he give Helena any assurances about immunity or offer financial compensation in return for her participation. To ensure Helena was mentally competent at the time she provided the information, an assessment was arranged with a psychologist who found her to be sane for the purposes of legal proceedings. Helena told the private investigator that many years earlier she had joined a cult and worked as a drug dealer to support her own dependency of drugs. The people in the cult were heavy drug users who were involved in animal and human sacrifices, and members included military personnel. Helena claimed that in late 1969, her former boyfriend Greg and other cult members formulated a plan to approach Jeffrey. They wanted to confront him over his refusal to prescribe methadone to recovering heroin users at Fort Bragg. This also extended to members of the cult, most of whom were using some form of opiates. Helena maintained that on the night in question, murder was not part of the plan. She told the private investigator that the group wanted to speak with Jeffrey about changing his ways, 
and cooperating and treating people who were dependent on heroin. However, she did say that if Jeffrey didn't cooperate, that murder was something the group had considered. In a videotaped interview, Alina claimed that on the night of February 16th, she called the McDonald house and spoke with Colette. In order to monitor Colette's movements that evening, Alina pretended to be a student in Colette's evening class. When classes concluded later in the evening, Alina and her associates drove to the school at Fort Bragg to see if they could find Colette. Helena told the private investigator the plan was to accost Jeffrey to rough him up a little, and things got out of hand. She claimed that when the group entered the McDonald home, the TV was still on. But due to the lateness of the hour, there was only static on the screen and white noise. Helena saw Jeffrey sleep on the couch, his glasses on the coffee table, and Valentine's Day cards sitting on a separate table. After Jeffrey was knocked unconscious... Helena stated that she and one of her associates made their way to the master bedroom, where they saw Colette and Kimberly sleeping. Helena claimed that her boyfriend Greg went to the bedroom, where things escalated, saying, When it got out of hand, I just wanted to get out of there. Helena said that at some point soon after, the carnage occurring in the home was interrupted by the shrill sound of the McDonald's phone ringing. Helena picked up the receiver and claimed a mail caller asked for Jeffrey, But as the group of intruders were highly drug-affected at the time, the situation struck them as absurd and they burst out laughing. After a few moments, Helena claimed she hung up the phone. She maintained that at no stage did she physically participate in the murders, and her only involvement was screaming, Acid is groovy. Kill the pigs. Hit them again. The man who allegedly made the call to the McDonald house was later said to be a G.I., who struggled with alcohol dependency and had been involved in army disciplinary proceedings. The man claimed that he attempted to contact Jeffrey at home on the night of the murders. This was corroborated by his medical records showing he was an inpatient at Womack Hospital at the time. In the documentary False Witness, the man was said to have absconded from the hospital grounds and gone out drinking in Fayetteville. In a bizarre coincidence, the man's treating doctor was another Dr. McDonald. By the time it reached 2 a.m., the man was heavily intoxicated, disoriented, and without money to catch a cab back to Womack Hospital. He called the hospital from a payphone and asked to speak to Dr. McDonald, but didn't provide his physician's first name. The hospital provided a home phone number for the man to call, but the number given out was for Jeffrey, who was not the man's doctor. When the man dialed the number, he stated that a woman answered the phone, The man could hear laughter and other people in the background. He then heard a man's voice say, Hang up the goddamn phone, and the line went dead. When the private investigator escorted Helena to the former McDonald home, he noted the level of accuracy she provided about the internal layout of the house. Helena admitted to breaking into the McDonald home approximately three weeks prior to the murders to obtain money for drugs. This appeared to account for her detailed knowledge of the layout, including the location of certain items. On the other hand, some aspects of Helena's account were troubling. She stopped short of publicly providing the names of her associates, who she claimed were also involved in the murders, stating that she had been threatened. Helena privately disclosed the identities of the people allegedly involved to the private investigator. However, When inquiries were made as to their whereabouts on the night of the murders, 
One of the individuals had been in prison for drug offenses at the time. Combined with the lack of forensic evidence that failed to prove Helena's presence at the home, her version of events was proving more and more that the defense was drawing a long bow. By the time Helena was being interviewed by Jeffrey's private investigator, she was pregnant. She claimed that the threats she received from particular individuals extended to both the welfare of her unborn child and her family. In an interview with a private investigator in 1982, Helena explained that she was warned by members of the cult not to speak about the murders publicly. However, she went on to say that she felt compelled by her conscience to tell the truth and hopefully see Jeffrey released from prison. In a controversial revelation, Helena claimed that the CID, Fayetteville PD, and federal prosecutors had previously promised her immunity on multiple occasions and then reneged on the offer. Unfortunately for Jeffrey, this level of detail was not heard at his original trial. Helena told the private investigator that at the time of the trial, she was fearful of going to jail if she proceeded with her testimony. She claimed that the prosecution wasn't interested in the details of her story as they appeared to be solely focused on convicting Jeffrey. Helena alleged that during the trial, the prosecution threatened to indict her on murder charges if she didn't change her story and comply with instructions issued at the time of her polygraph test. But both these claims were later denied by the prosecution. Following the murders, Helena's former boyfriend, Greg, was said to have admitted himself to a Fayetteville rehabilitation facility, where he reportedly confessed to killing Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen. In the years following the murders, Greg drifted around the Carolinas. He gave his friends the same account of what happened on the night of the murders telling them no one was meant to die, but that things just went bad. He admitted to having a hatred of Jeffrey over his refusal to prescribe methadone to return GI struggling with heroin dependency. To those around him, Greg also appeared to be fearful of the FBI. When Greg discovered that Helena had gone public with her version of events about the night of the murders, he was apparently enraged. It wasn't long until both the Army and FBI tracked Greg down, and interviewed him about Helena's claims. Greg denied any involvement in the murders, but agreed to take a polygraph test, which he passed. No further inquiries could be made of Greg, following his death in 1982 from drug and alcohol-related illness. Following her interviews with Jeffrey's private investigator, Helena moved to Valhalla in South Carolina. In January 1983, Helena was found dead in her apartment from pneumonia and cirrhosis, never having managed to overcome her dependency of alcohol and drugs. She was 32 years old. While some of the information gathered by Jeffrey's private investigator indeed appeared compelling initially, it ultimately came to nothing. Despite his prolific appeals... Jeffrey remained in prison, and in early 1983, his medical licenses for North Carolina and California were revoked. Since March 1985, Jeffrey has made repeated requests for a new trial on several grounds. These range from prosecutorial misconduct and judicial bias, to alleged suppression of evidence, to the severity of his sentence. When these were denied, he took the decision to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. When the Fourth Circuit upheld the original decisions, Jeffrey went to the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1992, 
the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that all Jeffrey's rights to any further appeals were forfeited. In 1987, Jeffrey sued author Joe McInnes for fraud. Joe had been part of the defense team during Jeffrey's trial. This was in conjunction with Jeffrey's invitation for Joe to write a book about the case in exchange for a share of the book's proceeds. Jeffrey was of the understanding that the book would explain why he was innocent, but when Fatal Vision was published in 1983, Joe McGinnis instead argued why Jeffrey was guilty. Jeffrey and Joe ended up settling out of court for $325,000. The case raised broader questions in the media about the ethics of authors who intentionally mislead their subjects to gain access to certain information. In 1991, Jeffrey became eligible for parole, but he chose to remain in jail, claiming that applying for parole would be tantamount to admitting he was guilty. Fourteen years later, in 2005, Jeffrey finally applied for parole in order to be able to live with his second wife, a teacher whom he married in 2002. In his application, Jeffrey claimed he was factually innocent, and his request was denied. In 2012, Jeffrey appealed to the federal district court, he requested a retrial in conjunction with considering new DNA evidence which wasn't available at the original trial. The new evidence was said to be a hair found under one of Kristen's fingernails, which could not be matched to anyone in the McDonald family. Jeffrey's appeal was also referred to a statement made by a former U.S. Marshal, who claimed that at the 1979 trial, the prosecution had intimidated Helena Stokely into changing her story, a claim Helena herself made prior to her death. This was apparently despite Helena confessing to the marshal personally during the trial that she was involved in the murders. In September 2012, at an evidentiary hearing, the former marshal's statement was proved to be a fabrication. In addition, a ruling was made that Helena had not been intimidated or threatened in any way during the trial. In relation to the forensic evidence Jeffrey wanted considered, the Washington Post reported that the hair from underneath Kristen's fingernail was found to be a naturally shed hair. It had not actually been found on Kristen, but instead had resulted from an accidental contamination of the lab sample. Listener, you remember the unidentified hair that was found in Colette's hand at the crime scene. As DNA testing techniques became more advanced over the years, a match was finally confirmed. That hair was found to not belong to an unidentified person, but to Jeffrey McDonald. In July 2014, the district court ruled against Jeffrey's appeal and upheld his conviction, which was affirmed by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in December 2018. Jeffrey is now serving his sentence at a federal institution in Cumberland, Maryland. He is next eligible to apply for parole in May 2020. To this day, he continues to maintain his innocence. Listener, as you've heard, despite Jeffrey's conviction 40 years ago and many, many appeals, the story isn't over just yet. Be sure to stay tuned for an update on the outcome of the upcoming parole hearing. But for today, I think that just about wraps things up. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.